We're extremely fortunate to have with us tonight Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom uh, from the University of California, Irvine, one of the country's probably foremost historians of the city of Shanghai. Uh, Professor Wasserstrom received his BA uh, from the University of California, Santa Cruz in 1982 before pursuing a master's degree in Asian studies at Harvard. And then from there, he went to Berkeley, where he received his PhD in 1989. He's taught at the University of Kentucky, spent 15 years at Indiana University, and is currently at California Irvine. His publication record is, is quite extensive, and a short introduction can't do it justice. In fact, it would probably take up the whole talk. Um, so I'm just going to hit a few highlights that are relevant to today's subject. Uh, his first book is called Student Protests in 20th Century China, The View from Shanghai. And that was published in 1991. In the 80s and 90s, he edited or co-edited several important volumes on China on various topics that included popular protests and political culture, human rights, constructions of gender, and the historiography of 20th century China. In 2008, Rutledge published his Global Shanghai 1850-2010, A History in Fragments. Jeff is also a very public-minded historian, however and he's always been committed to an audience that extends far beyond the ivory tower. He's published in the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and The Economist, among, any, among many others. He's also appeared on NPR, Morning Edition, and is currently involved in the production of The China Beat, blogging how the East is red, spelled R-E-A-D, which is a blog uh, put together by China specialists focused on analyzing media coverage of China to get at the real story behind the headlines. And in this connection, he's published China's Brave New World and Other Tales for Global Times in 2007. And his latest book, which has just come out uh, this week, it's hot off the press and available from Amazon, is called China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. So please join me in welcoming Professor Jeffrey Walker. It's a great pleasure to be here, and it's thank you for that uh, very fine introduction. We've realized we over we overlapped or sort of hopscotched around places uh, throughout our lives. With John also went to Harvard for a master's degree, and then escaped to California to do the rest of the degree, to do the PhD, and went to Indiana before right before I um, I think you were avoiding me. In fact, you know, um, and we were in China at the same memorable time, though we didn't see each other then, in 1999 in the heart of an anti-American um, movement that broke out after NATO bombs hit the Chinese embassy in Belgrade and there was a flurry of um, nationalist protests. But I'm not going to talk, I'm not wearing my protest hat today. Um, I spend, I kind of alternate between um, up topics and down topics and so I've worked a lot on a massacre, the massacre of 1989. I've worked a lot on, um, on sort of darker subjects. Now this will be a somewhat upbeat talk about Shanghai. Um, and I have fun when I tell it, and I think some of the images are very exciting. It doesn't mean that I don't think there's also a dark side to contemporary, um, contemporary Shanghai, um, including there are big issues about um, whether the environment can take what's, what's being done there, how much building is just too much. and I'll. I'll hint at some of that, but, on the, but don't let my upbeatness um, fool you this way. Um, Global Shanghai in 2010, a lot, of the, a lot of the images I'll be showing you, some were pulled from the web, but a fair number of them were taken um, by me on my digital camera, including this, um, this shot, which I call partly the creative destruction of Shanghai. 
in honor of a, a book called The Creative Destruction of Manhattan, which is about the continual, the fact that the great cities are always being sort of old landmarks torn down, new landmarks built that at first often are seen as eyesores and then become the landmarks that are treasured, that are broken down to build up the new things. Um, and um, this was taken with my digital camera. I, I'm not a, an especially um, uh, talented photographer, but Shanghai is now so photogenic that you can actually get some pretty good shots that way. I'll be drawing material from um, two books, my two most recent books, the Global Shanghai one that, um, that came out a little over a year ago, and China in the 21st Century, what everyone needs to know, that, um, that technically has an official publication date in a couple weeks, but has just been in stock in Amazon. In fact, I found out um, that just today was the first time I noticed it there. And the talk will be partly divided with um, the first part of it, drawing on material from Global Shanghai, and the second part, bringing in particularly the expo that's about to begin, the World Expo, the world, China's first World's Fair, is about to start in Shanghai um, on May 1st, and that will be brought in as, as well, drawing on China in the 21st century. So Shanghai, one of, the, one of the ways when I talk about Shanghai, I often bring in the fantasies about the city because it's a heavily mythologized and fantasized about city as this is a recent National Geographic that even uses the title Shanghai Dreams. China's global city tries to recapture the glories of its past, this time on its own terms. This suggests a couple of things about Shanghai, and this image I would say suggests a third. One is that Shanghai is a city that inspires um, dreams, dreams and nightmares. It's one of those kinds of cities that people have strong emotional feelings about, like Paris, like New York, like Tokyo. Um, a second thing is that the story of Shanghai today is largely a Shanghai that's trying to convince the world that it is again what it was at an earlier period. Shanghai in the 1920s and 30s was one of the most, um, most talked about and discussed cities on the planet. It was a city that everybody um, who wanted to be seen as a sophisticated world traveler would need to have on their itinerary. Einstein went there, Chaplin went there, um, and so on. So many celebrities sometimes that they bumped into each other and would write about seeing each other on the, on the streets there. So there's this dialogue between past and present that in some ways is hype, but in some ways is also um, true. That, that when global cities are thought about, they're often discussed by sociologists and other theorists as cities that go from being locally important to being regionally important to being nationally important to being globally important. And that's kind of the story with Tokyo, New York, and London, the classic global cities and some others. But Shanghai is what I talk about in the book as being a re-globalizing city, a city that was once very internationalized and then turned inward for a bit and then surged back to global importance. So in Global Shanghai, I put it in this category that includes, I think, some other um, re-globalizing post-socialist cities like Budapest or St. Petersburg that were more in step with the world early in the 20th century than in the middle of the 20th century and now have surged back. And it's not just, it's not just post-socialist ones. I'd put um, Istanbul in that same uh, kind of category. So I think it's an interesting, different kind of trajectory. The third thing about this photograph, I think that, or this, this yeah, this photograph image from National Geographic that, um, by the way, the, the article is pretty lousy um, in National Geographic. I mean, it's not terrible, but it, it reinforces some of the myths about the city that are just just wrong while, while also doing some good things. But the photographs are beautiful, so it's exactly the kind of article I love. 
because I can use some of the images and talk about demystifying it, demythologizing it. But the third thing about, the, that, about Shanghai that comes through from this that we'll figure in the talk to just give you a, a heads up is that it looks very much like a sci-fi um, city that way. And I'll talk about how science fiction comes in as well. Um, I love the fact that I'm giving this talk in a screening room because one of the things about Shanghai that makes it such a, a fantasized about city is that it's had an important filmic life. And this just gives you a sense of it. Most of these are old movies about old Shanghai. F city, films about the first golden age of Shanghai filmed during that period. Or at least Shanghai Gesture and Shanghai Express, both by um, von Sternberg, are in that category. And von Sternberg often also was a celebrity who traveled to China and wrote about it. Um, and then there are two more recent movies that revisit um, old Shanghai in a kind of nostalgic way. The top one, Shanghai Triad by Zhang Yimou, before he became the state choreographer for things like the um, Olympics and national parades. He was a, a filmmaker and still occasionally makes films. And then down in the middle, just to show you that um, I did some hard research for this. One of the hardest things I did in this research was to try to sit through this entire movie. Um, which is Shanghai Surprise, which has a lovely, well, kind of cheesy, but lovely uh, opening theme song by George Harrison, and then proceeds to um, be one of the worst movies, perhaps. Uh, one of the worst movies about Shanghai may be one of the worst movies ever. Madonna plays a missionary, and I'll say no more. Um, <laughs> Shanghai is, again and still, a movie, uh, a much, much film city. And it's actually one reason that when I compare Shanghai to other cities, it's often called the New York of, of China. It's been called the Paris of the East. But I think in many ways, the American city it resembles most in certain key ways is Los Angeles, including the fact that the stereotypes about Shanghainese are very like what the stereotypes of Angelinos are from New Yorkers. Um, Shanghainese are, are viewed as hedonistic, materialistic, and shallow, and only interested in popular culture, not deep culture. Of course, Shanghainese say what Angelinos say, is say that we're just in, interested in in exciting culture and that we're not staid like Shanghainese say about Beijing and, and Los Angeles, people say about New York. But the film connection between the two cities is, is very important. Shanghai was the Hollywood of, of China in the 1920s and 30s, the first film capital before Hong Kong displaced it after 1949. But it's always been a much filmed city. And um, this is why one of the part, part of the reason why one of the um, catchphrases about Los Angeles by urban theorist and architect Michael Sorkin, I think, is very applicable to Shanghai as well. Uh, Sorkin said about Los Angeles that it's become virtually un unviewable, save through the, through the fictive scrim of its mythologizers. And I think that's true also of Shanghai. It's true partly because of films. And I'll talk about both the old movies that are still being made there. These shots on this side are White Countess, um, a Merchant Ivory film filmed by some of the old Shanghai locations. And then I'll talk about Code 46 at one point, a much different kind of um, film about Shanghai. And I'll say why it's, it's, it represents something new. Um, one of the last things I just want to mention as a preface of what's interesting about this particular moment in Shanghai's trajectory is for a long time, Shanghai's been said, the, the catchphrase about Shanghai, one of them was, Shanghai isn't China. It was seen as someplace so unrepresentative, so different, so much more attached to the West and influenced by the outside world that it couldn't be seen as really representative of China. And some of us who were China specialists studying Shanghai had to be put on the defensive to explain 
how, you know, if you're a real Chinese historian, you would be studying the heartland. You, you would be studying Beijing or um, um, a village. You wouldn't be studying Shanghai, this kind of in-between place. And in fact, it used to be that, that any textbook about China or any introduction to China as in general would have a photograph of either a Beijing site or a rural site. And that's starting to shift as China is becoming increasingly part of the world in a global time. Shanghai is beginning to be able to stand for China, not for China necessarily as a whole, but for China's future, possibly. Um, and in images like this, you now have at the top Shanghai skyscrapers sharing space with other iconic images to represent the country. So that's an interesting thing, and I think it's one of the things that hosting the World's Fair, the World Expo, is important to Shanghainese who, who want to be seen as different, as separate, as having special characteristics, as local pride is very important in China, but also like this idea of simultaneously being able to, um, to stand for the country in some ways. Okay, so this is going to be the part that draws from Global Shanghai, and it's largely a dialogue between, uh, as the book is, between sort of pushing on this idea of Shanghai now being a return uh, to glory of the uh, Shanghai of an earlier period. And I'll be leaving out one set of Shanghai. I said I'd be leaving out the kind of darker side of, of Shanghai for the most part, but I'll also be leaving out one important part of the Shanghai story that is in the Global Shanghai book, which is Shanghai as a revolutionary uh, center, a center of radical energy. In part because this talk is focusing on the present, and that is one part of Shanghai's past that doesn't seem to be um, reemerging. Shanghai as a place of real radical experimentation, either in the arts or in, uh, as a main center of radical experimentation, either in the arts or politics, doesn't seem um, to be there. But it's worth knowing that this is another part of the Shanghai um, reputation. Shanghai was called the Paris of the East mostly because it was seen as the fashion center. So like Paris was the fashion center of Europe, Shanghai was the fashionable center of, of, of China, but there was also a Paris of the East. In some ways, um, Shanghai had the Shanghai Commune in, um, during the Cultural Revolution, and that was seen as a kind of echo of the Paris Commune of 1871. And this is a Chinese one that says long, that's about Mao saying, long live the Paris Commune. And there was a lot of celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Paris Commune, um, and particularly focused on Shanghai as it as a retooling of this. And this other image down here, this photograph I took, is of a statue um, commemorating the great worker strikes of the 1920s that were, um, that were another time when um, Shanghai was seen as having parallels to France. The, the, the worker strikes were called uh, China's Bastille, and there was a radical novelist who even wrote um, a, a novel about these worker strikes that referred to the, the workers as uh, China's sans culotte. So um, I, I'm very interested in comparisons between revolutions, but that's not what I'm going to go into here. Just as a quick background for those of you who may be less familiar with Shanghai and with China, it's halfway up the coast there. So it's a very attractive spot. It was in some ways, if not destined, then at least well suited to become a great connecting point between China and the outside world. It's, it's near the delta of one of China's great rivers, the Yangtze River, that bisects, goes down the middle of the country and connects, um, connects the sea to hinterland provinces, rich provinces such as Sichuan. Um, Sichuan over here, 
then um, flows to Shanghai um, there. And above it is the Yellow River, these two rivers, and then there's a third river, the Pearl River, down below that flows to Hong Kong and Macau. A lot of China's geography is set up there. So Shanghai was well positioned to become one of the great uh, connecting points to the outside world. It wasn't a great connecting, it wasn't the major great connecting point to the outside world in the early 1800s because at that point, trade with the West was limited to Canton and Macau. And Shanghai was left out of the game initially before the Opium War. It was only after the Opium War when um, Western powers insisted on having access to more parts of China that Shanghai was ceded. Uh, the British and then later the French and the Americans got the right to establish self-governing enclaves there where they would um, be able to trade with the Chinese on their terms. And in part because Shanghai boomed after that, one of the myths about Shanghai that's still repeated in places like um, that National Geographic article that I'm picking on, uh, but also in many guidebooks within Shanghai, is a notion that Shanghai before the Opium War of the 18, uh, 1839 through 1842, Shanghai was a mere fishing village that then suddenly became one of the great cities of the world. In fact, it was a significant minor city and a significant trading port, but just not trading with the West. It traded with Southeast Asia. And you know that before the Opium War, that's one reason why the Westerners wanted it badly opened up to foreign trade and settlement. This is a map of Shanghai circa 1817, and you see clearly it's, it's not a fishing village. Um, it has a wall, a city wall. And the Chinese word for city, Changshu, means a place with a wall and a market. And Shanghai had a definite wall from the 16th century onward. And it definitely had bustling markets. And you can see from this map that it had lots of things. Maybe it's hard to tell, but those aren't houses. Those are things like academies and temples and, um, and stores of different sorts. So it wasn't a village. It had about 200, 250,000 people living in it, which you, know, you can argue about how small or how large a village can be. But a quarter of a million, it's, it's not a village. And it wasn't a fishing village because most people weren't fishing. They were doing things like involved with trade. Um, there were scholars. There were temples and, and so forth. There was even briefly uh, sort of flourishing early of, of some Christianity when Jesuits got down there before this Opium War period. So the Opium War wasn't even the first time that Shanghai had, had any kind of international connections. It would trade to Southeast Asia. But it did grow dramatically after um, after the Opium War. And what happened with the city and what allowed it, uh, what really made it so globally famous was in part that it had, the, it was this divided city in which there was an international settlement which was the Americans and the British who were two of the three first main um, foreign powers to come there and then later the Japanese all bounded to get, banded together in this international settlement which was a self-governing, almost like a city-state. It was run by locally elected um, municipal council uh, for a while, they wanted the French to be part of it, too, but the French didn't want to be part of it. And this may seem just typically French cussedness, but it actually was essentially a religious thing. There were merchants from these countries that came there and also missionaries. The British and American missionaries tended to be Protestant. The French tended to be Catholic. And so the French stayed separate. And the French concession was much more like a traditional colonial uh, entrepot, which was governed by somebody appointed by Paris, whereas the international settlement had people um, locally elected. And then there was the white sections on this map were still under Chinese control. 
So China was, Shanghai was never fully colonized. It was partially colonized and um, became this divided city, which allowed for a lot of the radicalism experimentation. It was the first home of, of an exciting press. And one of the great things was people in the different concessions, different sections of Shanghai would, would try to censor you for doing different things. So if you wanted to criticize the Chinese um, government, you would just operate your press in the international settlement of the French concession. If you wanted to criticize the British and the Americans, you'd operate in the French concession or the Chinese ones. And if you got into trouble as a radical group, the Communist Party started there, in part because you could just move across the border and the, the police, uh, there were separate police jurisdictions, separate police groups um, who often didn't cooperate very well with each other. All right, the reputation of Shanghai in this earlier period that when the, the current story is Shanghai is once again the great place where East meets West. Um, this is one of the kinds of images that's invoked. This is from a wax museum of Shanghai history in, um, in, that's in the city. And this you see Chinese, presumably young intellectuals, dressed in Western clothing, perhaps drinking tea, but quite possibly drinking coffee because cafes were there. And then you see the Lyceum Theater by there. So this was a place of, of, of hybridity and fusion of East and West. And now it is again. It's now again the great um, international place of, of um, China. Now this is a partially true thing, but partially misleading. And I think it's misleading in a couple of ways. It's partially misleading because Shanghai in the 19-teens, 20s, and now again today, is partly a place where East meets West, but also a place where East meets East. A lot of the international influences in Shanghai in this same period were coming from Japan as opposed from the West. And in fact, in another wax museum figure, you see figures like this drinking coffee with a, an Indian intellectual, reminding you that this was not just the time when Western celebrities like Chaplin and Einstein and um, John Dewey came through, but also Tagore and other uh, and Japanese uh, figures. Um, so it was a place where East meets East, and it's again a place where East meets East as well as East meets West. So this image will be shown and people say, yeah, now Starbucks are back and there are lots of cafes in China again. But Starbucks, which may seem East meets West, West going to East, it's an American company that serves European style cappuccino and espresso, so surely that's a West meets East story. Except when the, when the Starbucks opened in Shanghai in 2000, they were managed by Presidential Coffee, a Taiwanese firm, which was thought to better understand how to bring capitalism to a previously non-capitalist um, Asian setting. Presidential Coffee, which had previously been in charge of bringing 7-Eleven stores to the Philippines. So there's an East meets East side to the story. And just as many, just as lots of Starbucks have been opening, so have lots of ramen restaurants been opening. And even more than there have been lots of McDonald's, but even more karaoke bars. So Shanghai has always been, I think, a place where East meets East, uh, East meets East as well as East meets West. But the other thing about the shift from what Shanghai's kick was in the early 20th century to what it is now is, I think, a little subtler. There's been a shift now. Um, this is a pastiche I like of two, co the covers of two editions of the same guidebook. And as you'll see, there are some there are some, um, there's one identical picture in one of the corners. Um, in the 1992 uh, one, at least the way I read it, the top two pictures represent the West, and the bottom two pictures represent 
China. So they're saying this is, you're going to a part of China that has been influenced by the West. By the time you get to 1995, and I think even increasingly now, Shanghai is seen as a place where different cultures come together and are juxtaposed in interesting ways, but different temporalities come together and are juxtaposed in different ways. At least the way I see it, now that Western, uh, the clock tower building, now is a symbol in as much of the past as it is of the West. And so you have a kind of vertical line down here where these are images of Shanghai as a place with an interesting past that also has an exciting present and perhaps a futuristic side to it through the Pearl the Orient Tower that was built in 95. So I think now what's increasingly happened in Shanghai is it's as much the juxtaposition of temporalities as the juxtaposition of eras that is interesting about the place. This is um, shown in the resurgence of local interest. There's um, the, the local book station, uh, the local book city, one of the largest, or the largest bookstore, I think, has a whole section devoted to sort of works on Shanghai. And it has go one way and it's new Shanghai with the futuristic trains and things like that. Go the other way and it's old Shanghai and you'll see things about rickshaws, uh, rickshaws and opium and things like that. But the place of the old and new and the divide keeps shifting. When I first started going to this place in the early 90s, in the, no, in the late 90s, the old was everything pre-1949, pre-the Communist Revolution. Increasingly, things are slipping in here that are pre-1990, the new takeoff of Shanghai. So first there was a 1956 map that slipped in there. And now I think you might very soon see everything before this kind of dramatic takeoff of the new skyscrapers of Pudong, East Shanghai, that began in the mid-1990s. And there are other ways in which the iconography of the city is increasingly um, meant to show both that Shanghai is re-internationalizing, but also that it's becoming futuristic. And so this is their continual juxtapositions of the buildings that were once uh, the most modern in Asia with these new ones, the, the icons of Pudong, East Shanghai, which was nothing when I first went there in the the mid-1980s, had no tall buildings of any sort, and now has the tallest buildings on Earth. So there's a continual sense now, it's not even of East and West or, or different, different places, but different eras that is seen as um, juxtaposed. And that's true even with this returning to this image, which does invoke past and present, but it's actually in the basement of the Pearl of the Orient Tower, that futuristic um, syringe-looking um, thing, or it's been called less, less kind things by people who hate it. But it's, uh, Ian Bruma called it that great phallic monstrosity. And it also looks like a rocket ship that can't quite take off, or dated futurism, something out of the Jetsons. All these things have been said. But so you have, even when you're looking at this, yes, you're, you're seeing different, different, different parts of the world come together, but you're also seeing different eras. And in fact, at one point it was, go inside to see two Shanghais, go down to see the past, go up to see the present. But increasingly, it's becoming um, to see the future. Xintiandi is one of the hot spots in contemporary Shanghai. It's a district where they tore down old-style buildings and rebuilt them in the style of, um, of, the, the, of an earlier era, of the early 20th century, of a period of a hybrid architectural style um, that fused some elements of East and West. And that building with Zen is, is in that kind of style that was a very prevalent um, housing style for a while. But the catchphrase for Shintiandi is um, 
where the, where the present meets the future in the Shanghai of today, or something like that. So there's a continual riffing on Shanghai being back. This was a giant projection there in Shintiandi, which shows the idea that Shanghai, now that it's got Pudong, is now back in the same class as places, the great cities of the world, such as Paris. But there's also, so there's a nod to the past. There's also a lot of mixing of international influences there. All right, I said I would say something about science fiction, and I, I will, and that gets me to um, the specialness of Shanghai currently being seen as a futuristic place. Jules Verne, in Around the World in 80 Days, dissed Shanghai. He had uh, Phileas Fogg travel around the world, and he almost gets to Shanghai. He goes to Hong Kong and raves about Hong Kong. Then he's on the way to Shanghai, and he can hop a steamer going to Yokohama and save, shave a little bit of time off. So he doesn't make it to Shanghai. And at that point, Shanghai was rising, but Canton and Hong Kong were still slightly, 1870s, still slightly ahead. And then Shanghai started to go ahead. Jules Verne made up for it by setting an entire novel, his only novel set entirely in Shanghai, in China, was called The Tribulations of a Chinese Gentleman. And it was set um, completely in Shanghai, one of his lesser-known novels, and not one of his best. Not, not as bad as the Madonna movie, but, but you know. But what's interesting about the, um, the story to me is he views Shanghai as the place where there are lots of the latest technologies and, and gadgets. And the hero is a Chinese, um, a Chinese uh, gentleman who has all the latest um, light fixtures. He has all the latest in inventions of Edison within his home. He's really um, quite unusual. And, and he, he's described by Verne as unusual unlike many um, Chinese mandarins, uh, according to Verne, who were resisting new technologies and objecting to, to, to railroads and things like that. This was somebody who embraced them. And he chose Shanghai, I think, for the setting, because if there was a Chinese city where you could find people most interested in becoming in step with modernity, it was there. If there was anybody living a uh, lifestyle closest to modernity, it was there. There's a student from a Shanghai university who's currently uh, doing a, um, a study program at Irvine, in fact, who's working on how electricity came to the foreign-run parts of Shanghai very, very early. Um, so sh there were parts of Shanghai that were very, very modern. But even though Jules Verne in a lot of stories has futuristic elements to his stories, things that look ahead like rocket ships going to the moon, there's nothing futuristic in that story. Shanghai was seen as futuristic compared to the rest of China. It was a place where people from outside, of, from outside of the city, Chinese might go to see things that looked into, to them futuristic. But Westerners merely saw it. When they went there, they never saw anything that made them think, wow, this is a place ahead of us. They just thought, wow, this is China, but it's almost in, in step with us. But that, I think, has started to change. And this is one of the real differences, that Shanghai, in a sense, has been a place where Chinese have looked to as futuristic, but it's now becoming a place that people around the world are. And here is the Expo um, slogan. And I won't talk much about the Expo or its uh, ridiculous little mascot, Haibao, till later. But the theme of touch the future in Shanghai. And, and Expos, I'll just say, like the World's Fairs before them, were always places where you went to get a sense of the technologies to come. It was a place to get a, a look at the world without leaving your own country and a look at the future without leaving your own time. And it's where it's, it's, it was World's Fairs and Expos that inspired Tomorrowland and Disneyland, for example. So Shanghai is now becoming seen as that kind of place. And so Future City, the skyscraper museum um, display, 
that brings together Hong Kong, um, um, New York, and Shanghai uh, in this whole notion of prophecy and forward-lookingness that was used on the poster for this talk very appropriately. It's now, and it's now becoming very common for Shanghai to be thought of in those terms. In Jules Verne's day, Shanghai might be the first Chinese um, city or was imagined as the kind of Chinese city where up to speed technologies would go. But the magnetic levitation train in Shanghai now is the fastest train on earth. And it was developed, it was a German technology that no place in Germany was willing to let them run one, but Shanghai was. So Shanghai was able to, and this has become one of the symbols of new Shanghai, and it is a futuristic um, kind of thing to ride kind of sillily futuristic because it takes you from the airport to a place kind of near the airport where you then get on the subway and go the rest of the way. But um, it will be extended so you can ride it to the World's Fair. So you begin your trip from the airport to the World's Fair on this kind of um, space age technology. This is when I rode it, just so you can see, it is fast. Um, I got sort of an enjoyment out of being in Japan and um, a few years ago. and a meeting with some Japanese provincial officials who said, you know, with China rising, do you think we have a shot? And for a long time, Japan had, had clearly been the major power, um, the technological power in the region. I said, well, yeah, I don't know, but I am looking forward to going to Shanghai tomorrow. I took the bullet train to get here, but tomorrow I'm going to take a really fast train. But maybe one of the clearest signs of how Shanghai has become futuristic is that it's already now, finally, for the first time, there are protests there not about um, wanting the, the country to, to modernize more quickly, but worrying that the country is modernized too much. These were some of the most recent protests. See, I ha always have to slip something about protests in. In 2008, people protesting against extensions of this magnetic levitation train line through the heart of the city, worrying that it would harm their children's health or the, the noise, the noise, and their new property owners who now want to defend their property values. So these were some of China's first NIMBY, not in my backyard, environmental kinds of protests. You see up top the cross through the uh, magnetic levitation. So maybe the way you can tell a city is really futuristic is that people start having nightmares about its futuristicness. They start being the subject of science fiction dark fantasies, which Shanghai is becoming, which uh, here's another, it gets celebrated, the 21st century city, Forbes is doing something on um, futuristic, the, the world capitals of the future in the plural, but it uses a Shanghai uh, image to, to illustrate it. In many ways, China itself, there's an epical switch. China itself, we aren't saying, what will it take for China to become modern, but can the world deal with a modern China, or, or can, the, can the environment stand a modern China? So I think it, this is in step with what was also happening in 2008, the Olympics, um, in that way. Going backward in time a little bit, I think one of the things about Shanghai today that's being talked about a lot is the destruction of treasured landmarks. And that is something to worry about, but I think it's also important to remember that there is a series of creative destructions that have gone on. So this is the Bund, the, China, the waterfront. The, the iconic structures of Shanghai have always been on the waterfront. The Bund was, on, was where the build, tall buildings first went up, and then Pudong across the waters where the super high skyscrapers went. But these were the first grand tall buildings that went up in Shanghai when, after the Westerners arrived, and they were described as the most modern looking structures in China in the 1870s. Then they were torn down, so that this set of new structures, even more modern and even more Western-looking, went up there, including a clock um, that, was, that was a customs house that um, then would give way in 1927 
to still this different clock that would be put, the third iteration of the Bund. And that clock was called Big Ching, to give you the idea. It was like Big Ben, only in China. Now the icon, and it was the most famous icon of, of Shanghai, but now it's displaced, and you can see right by Big Ben, uh, no, with the same lineup that includes Big Ben, now you have the Pearl the Orient Tower of Pudong there. So they don't call it Big Ching, but it um, has that new place. And now the buildings of the Bund were seen as some of the grandest structures in Asia. It was always seen as some of the tallest buildings in Asia. But now Shanghai has some of the tallest buildings, indeed the tallest building they had briefly until Dubai overtook them in the world. This is looking up the Jin Mao Tower, which for a while was the tallest building in Asia. And this is from the 88th floor of the Jin Mao Tower, looking out from the observation deck, where I saw people being lifted to, be, to go up above the 88th floor to work on the even taller building um, next door. So I thought it was great that he still had enough presence of mind at 88 stories outside to be flashing me a peace sign. <laughs> this is in the Urban Planning Museum, this vision of the, um, the old um, tall buildings and the new tall buildings dwarfing them, which I think of as partly, I've uh, called it patriotic revenge via architecture. It's sort of saying how quaint modernity used to look like that. The West used to be very proud of those buildings. And now you have um, the expo being touted with what will, which they hope to be yet the latest um, iconic structure of China, this China pavilion. And then you have the three uh, big skyscrapers um, nearby. Pearl Yorin Tower, Jin Mao Tower, which is kind of pagoda-like. And in between them, the tallest building in Shanghai, and until recently the tallest building in the world, the World Financial Center, which had an interesting story because in the, the displays in the Urban Planning Museum, it had a, a circle at the top. And it was being built by a Japanese company. And some people objected that that looked like the rising sun coming up above um, Shanghai, which had suffered from Japanese occupations before. So they, people objected, and they changed it to this um, rectangle, which is kind of silly looking, and has led some local wags to call it the can opener building. <laughs> One sign of this differentiation of the architecture no longer being unusually big for China, unusually modern for China, but unusually modern for the world, unusually tall, is this Code 46 was a science fiction movie by Michael Winterbottom, a very talented British director, who wanted to make a film set in the future but didn't want to pay for sets. He thought it would be cheaper that way, and he thought that sets made the future look too artificial. He thought the future will look more like what we are living in now. So he looked around the world for places he could film that, that his audience would believe couldn't possibly exist now. And he found Pudong in Shanghai and Dubai, and did a mashup of Pudong and, uh, and Dubai, and called it Shanghai of the future, surrounded it with a desert, and invoked some of, the, uh, some of the elements traditionally associated with Shanghai, including people speaking a kind of polyglot form of speech that had elements of East and West in it. And um, it's a fascinating movie, visually just stunning, and Tim Robbins and Samantha Morton. It, it's virtually unknown, and it's not the greatest plot. It's kind of cloning. It's, it's a little bit uh, derivative, but it's still um, visually quite stunning. As is this. Um, I love any excuse to. I'm now segueing to the, the second part of the talk, which I'll do very rapidly, which is drawing from China in the 21st century, what everyone needs to know. This is when, what I, what I talk about in that, which I'll focus on, is why is Shanghai so, why is China so intent on spending enormous amounts of money 
for this big world expo right after it hosted the Olympics. And the Olympics were the most expensive in, in history. The expo will be the most expensive in world history. The expo will be the biggest world's fair in the history of the world. But why do they need to do it so soon after having um, wowed us all with the Olympics? And one of the answers, I think, is Shanghai has been wanting to assert its ability to be a kind of world center again so that, Shang so that it won't be pushed aside, in a sense, by Beijing being the world, world city. And this was an early effort to do this. While Beijing gets most of the collections of world leaders, the APEC uh, Summit of Asian Pacific uh, Economic Cooperation was held in, uh, sh in Shanghai in 2001 to try to, to show that Shanghai could, could host this world-class thing. And I just like to see Jiang Zemin and Bush looking so silly. Um, so what Shanghai's been doing to rev up for this, there's been a countdown. And this is one of the things that, the other thing is that it's not just that um, the expo is following on the heels of the Olympics. It's being pitched as a kind of sequel to the Olympics. And many things that were done for the Olympics are being done for the expo. So there were big countdown clocks in Beijing for the Olympics. There are big countdown clocks now with very few days left in Shanghai for the expo. The city is even calling the expo a, an economic Olympics a technological Olympics. I keep telling them they should rebrand it a World's Fair, but they aren't listening. Um, a World's Fair sounds exciting and fun. A technological Olympics sounds really deadly. And an expo sounds like a trade show. So, um, but the city, uh, the city and the country has in part become kind of addicted to these big events to sort of keep showing that it has arrived and returned. And I think the, expo the, the, the Olympic Expo combination is one that's important to realize it's happened before of these in pretty short order. When Japan was rising to be the world's number two economy, they hosted um, the Olympics in 1964, and that was seen as returning from a down period after World War II. And then they hosted a, the first Expo ever hold, it, held in Asia, the first World's Fair held in Asia, the Osaka Expo of 1970. And then to complete a kind of trilogy of markers of return in, a few years later, they got the first Asian Disneyland. So China, Olympics 2008, Expo 2010, Shanghai Disney in 2014 or 2015 is on the way. Um, Korea doesn't have a Disneyland yet, but it hosted a, a, an Olympics in 88 and then, um, and then an Expo soon afterwards. So it's partly that. And it's partly that it gives the city a chance to, um, to reassert itself vis-a-vis um, -vis Beijing, but it's also the country rising through this kind of thing. And it's all over, these massive, um, these massive television things. I find this one somehow a little bit scary, you know, this giant baby um, coming toward us. Reminds me of the line in The Simpsons when Homer says, the children are our future unless we stop them now. And, you know, <laughs> but... You, you see throughout China these great, enormous amounts of advertising for what it's already accomplished or what it will accomplish. There used to be continual advertisements of the Communist Party's um, slogans. Now there often are often advertisements for the locale itself because to some extent people don't believe so much in the, in the broader ideas, but they do take intense pride in the way their locales have developed in recent years. The expo, just to, the other thing I try to remind of the, it's not just that they've been, they've been both important markers of um, arrival of different places. And it isn't just that Japan was the first place in Asia to host a, a World's Fair when it was rising to be the world's second economy. But the United States was the first place 
outside of Western Europe to host a World's Fair when we were rising toward becoming the second and then the, world's, then the first world economy. So the Expo is this um, place where you see elements of the world, you walk through national pavilions that give you a sense of the different parts of the world and a sense of, of the futuristic. And I think you get this sense of, of riffing on this in the presentation of the Expo, whereas there's the international around the border and um, the futuristic side um, in the center. What World's Fairs used to be also was they were ways of, mar of, of symbolizing the hierarchies among countries in the world. All countries, uh, many countries would take part in World's Fairs, but not, on the, not in the same way. The more advanced, quote unquote, modern countries would display their most advanced technologies, including their biggest weapons, which were some of the biggest um, attractions at early World's Fairs. The, more, um, the less developed countries would display their exotic customs. That's the, the, the Chinese exhibit at the 1876 World's Fair up there. Or, in fact, their peoples would be put on display in a sort of human zoo effect that was the, the most disturbing part of old World's Fairs. So part of what, what China is doing by hosting a World's Fair is trying to put completely out of your mind the idea of China being a backward country or an exotic country and trying to claim its place in the, um, in the leading countries of the world and sort of banish that earlier period. And it's important to remember that before about the 1930s, the World's Fair were the really important international event. The Olympics were a minor sideshow. It's only later that that was reversed. World's Fairs generated enormous excitement in places like Chicago in 1893, Philadelphia 1876, these were the first American World's Fair, and then big ones like the Century of Progress, um, Chicago World's Fair, and then also uh, the, the two World's Fairs in New York. There's also, lest you think of these things as not being very significant, this is a foreign policy listed um, a, a kind of metric of cities of global importance around the world. And they, they used many different metrics. It was a very sophisticated thing, both economic centrality and cultural centrality and fame. And they came up with this chart. And Shanghai comes up at number 20 and um, has been rising, would like to rise higher. And one of the things, um, it, if you look at all of those, what you find is that nearly every city above Shanghai on the list has hosted one of these mega events, the Olympics or the World's Fair. So here's a just quick list to run through of the places that hosted uh, World's Fairs and that are ranked or were ranked as some of the great cities of the world. Then here's that chart again. Again, I'm not expecting you to take this all in, but trust me. Most of the cities that are above Shanghai have hosted one of these. These are the places that hosted Olympics. So somehow it's something that for China seems a natural thing to do to follow in the trajectory of uh, Japan, or before that America, Japan, Korea, when we, the rising industrial powers, bringing some new power into the mix. But also it's something that Shanghai, as a kind of city, you can see why they might want to um, get to that point. Now there is one city, um, one of the very few cities, there are two or three, that are above Shanghai in the list of globality, um, but haven't hosted one of these great events, is Singapore. And Singapore, I think, has managed to do this in part because it has a world's, what I call a World's Fair effect. It has many of the things that you associate with the World's Fair without actually hosting one. This is a sense of being a place that seems to be a place where the world comes together and the future is on display. And here, from my first trip to Singapore, is a shot of, um, this is an Epcot-like center around um, the river where you move from country to country 
cuisine to cuisine, and even regional cuisines of different countries, it's very much like an Epcot feeling, at least in the food, like the most elaborate version of a grand food court you could imagine. And the food court in an international airport is like a World's Fair effect kind of place. It also has up top the world's tallest Ferris wheel. The Ferris wheel was the great icon of the 1893 World's Fair, just as the, the Eiffel Tower was the great icon of the 1889 World's Fair in Paris. And then it has this building, which looks like a spaceship about to take off, a UFO. And many of the, the buildings in Singapore and the technologies in Singapore seem futuristic, seemed like something you would experiment with at a um, World's Fair, you would get a sense of. And Shanghai itself, I think, one of the interesting things is it almost has a World's Fair effect. It's almost redundant to have the expo there when it has so many futuristic things. This is a scale model of the city as it would be in a few years when they thought they were going to build the world's biggest Ferris wheel. Then they let Singapore have it and didn't build it there. This is what I think of as a World's Fair effect kind of shot. This is one of the, when you stand on the Bund, which used to be the center of the international settlement, you look across, you see this giant globe, which is actually what World's Fairs, World Expos have often had as a kind of central figure in the recent. This isn't built for the World's Fair. This was built before, well before the Expo. And you see these futuristic looking sites and these intensely global looking sites. And another thing that um, World's Fairs are centers of, of consumption of goods from around the world. This is the first in the world Barbie theme park store. So Shanghai is becoming this kind of exposure of, of, of consumption, which is what um, Walter Benjamin said um, that Expo, World Expos, international exhibitions were the pilgrimage site for the commodity fetish. And that's certainly what um, Barbie is. Here's the, the, what's going to be the iconic structure of the, of the Shanghai World's Fair. It also has a kind of theme park feel to it. And World's Fairs and theme parks go together. But much of Disneyland was borrowed from World's Fairs. Disney's father was a carpenter on the 1893 World's Fair. He grew up thinking about them, dreaming about them. The idea of seeing the world on display, like the It's a Small World site or the Epcot uh, part of, of um, Disney World and to see the future on display through Tomorrowland is very much a theme park uh, permanent World's Fair kind of thing. This is the um, iconic structure whose, uh, this is rather, this is the mascot whose um, statues are another kind of icon for Shanghai. They're all over the city, much the way Mao's used to be. Um, so I talk about these kinds of things in China in the 21st century. If you want to learn more, about, um, about this and go beyond Shanghai to other things that explore in part this more general thing of some ways that Shanghai is in step with and even exemplifies some things about, about China now, which is that it's a, it's a country that's gone from the question being, would it be able to ever become um, fully modern to worrying about the possibilities of, um, of its people adjusting to the dizzying rate of change and the world adjusting to how quickly it's, um, it's achieved that status. So thanks for your attention. I look forward to questions about any of this. Questions, comments, criticisms? I was wondering why you omitted the fact that Shanghai is built below sea level and that uh, it, those buildings, the high-rise, there's a, yeah, no, I mean, Shanghai is, is, well, first of all, it's, 
the, the name Shanghai means on the sea or above the sea, but it's barely above the sea, as you point out. It's there. And it's also, it's, it's importance to the sea has always been its nearness to the ocean, and now it's expand, but it's actually on this river inland from it, and now it's expanding out more and more toward reconnecting with the ocean. Haibao being blue is to represent Shanghai's connectedness to the sea, the word hai in its title. So, but it does always have, it has had this, there is this worry about it sort of returning to the sea, how it can stand. Um, it's, a big, it's a big problem, it's a big issue. There used to be a lot of predictions of, of doom for Shanghai. The river would silt up, it would stop being a good harbor, and now there are continual concerns about the sinking of it. Um, I think that's, the, I mean, I just alluded to the idea that now it's, the question about it is how much is too much, not, I mean, it's part of, I think, the same thing. Rather than worrying about will it be able to impress, now it's sort of will it be able to keep standing. But that's a good point to bring up. Yeah? In the Shanghai of the future, maybe it's already here, um, will everyone have a car? And have they learned nothing from Los Angeles? Yeah. <laughs> well, it does have freeways. It has, um, yeah, yeah. Well. You've hit upon maybe the biggest single, I think it's sort of the biggest single moral dilemma for uh, talking about China in this, in this period, which is that if, if you look back to the 19, 1970s, 1980s, the constant mantra, I would say, of the American press and the American punditry too was, why can't the Chinese look to us as a model? If only they admired our, um, our lifestyles, what a great thing for the world that would be because the presumption, and we were rooting for them to successfully modernize. It wasn't just that Chinese were trying to do this. And now there's this incredible concern that the admiration for an American lifestyle with all of its overconsumption and uh, energy uses is, is, is something the world can't take. So. I mean, I do, so, so how you deal with this morally, in a sense to say, yes, learn from the mistakes we made, don't do what we did at that point, don't build giant dams. And it's interesting though how often China building giant dams will be criticized without the acknowledgement that at a similar kind of stage in, in economic development, we were building these giant dams. We need to make a series of, I think they're very complicated moves to make that need to be done very carefully without seeming very patronizing, or we had our turn and we became strong because of it. These were wasteful things, but, but now we know better. But we're not going to go back. I mean, we're not going to stop using air conditioning. We're not going to stop driving cars ourselves. But you can't have the same kind of per capita car use. So I, there's no quite, I, I both agree that this is something that the world can't take. And I think it's a difficult thing to be able to argue for, not just for China, but for um, the rest of the sort of late developing world, because it's absolutely right. Um, so that's one of the, you know, that's one of the worrisome implications. These are, these are two of the worrisome implications of what's been going on in Shanghai. The other worrisome implication, which I've downplayed in, in playing up the sort of um, high spots, both literally and um, figuratively, is that, it, that, that the excitement of Shanghai and the sort of pleasures of Shanghai aren't evenly distributed among uh, people socially. That there's been a return to um, flagrant inequalities. Uh, well, throughout, this is a China story. 
not specifically Shanghai, but it has certain resonances Shanghai, with Shanghai. When I first lived there in the mid-1980s, one of the really exciting things about being there was that um, most people had roughly similar material conditions. And there, weren't, there were a small number of people with close ties to the Communist Party who were living privileged lives, but most everybody else seemed to be in roughly the same boat. You could be in very different occupations, and you had quite similar kinds of salaries. Within the city, you were in, there was a quite a clear difference between, between urbanites and ruralites, but still, even there, it was to live in a period, I mean, it was very exciting for me to live in a place that was post-totalitarian but still socialist and in, in a meaningful way. And so I have a kind of nostalgia for that period, even though there were problems. Now you have a place that's, that's post-socialist as well as post-totalitarian. So it's still authoritarian, but it's having a lot of the negative effects of, um, of capitalism as well. So you have gross inequities of wealth and poverty. You also have the situation which is typical of, of, of capitalist development of many of the people who are building these exciting new structures are not able to um, afford to eat in the nicer restaurants or go to the Starbucks even and things like that. Another kind of eerie resonance of the sort of even colonial period, even though the, the official rhetoric about Shanghai is we're doing, we're go, we're doing it, we're re-globalizing, we're becoming cosmopolitan again, but this time on our own terms without the stigma of any kind of colonial element. But what some people have, have said to me is that in the center of the city now, in the most desirable districts, English works very well as a lingua franca, lingua business. At the next ring out, it's um, Putonghua, standard Chinese, which is largely people coming in from different places and that sort of negotiating there. And it's only in the outer ring that Shanghainese is still widely, so that people who used to feel most rooted to the city are now being relocated outside. So it's a very complicated process, but that's another of the, I think, the dark sides of it. Um, have they learned anything from our, our, our past? Um, they're certainly better about building a lot of trains. They are, they are doing that well, that better than, better than we, what we did well at an earlier period in our history and then somehow forgot. But I think, you know, the environmental issue, it's, 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 it's just enormous, but it isn't something that, it isn't something that you can say simply, just don't do that, because we know, without sounding patronizing. And I think that's something we've, we've got to develop because it's something the U.S. and China have to, have to, have to work together to solve. And it's, so it's an enormous conundrum. More questions? Yeah. You just mentioned, actually, that sort of the mantra is now we're going to do it on our own terms. But I'm curious about the colonial legacy and how it gets incorporated in kind of the romanticization of the past. Yeah. And if there's one image that's presented to sort of foreign tourists, another to Chinese tourists, or just how that sort of heritage is dealt with when the past is romanticized. No, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And I think part of the issue is, well, part of the answer is this. Shanghai really had two, um, two experiences of, um, of colonialism of a sort. And one was the dividing up of the city into three separate districts with this um, separately run uh, international settlement, French concession, and Chinese territories. And there were certainly plenty of complaints at the time about elite, from Chinese who were both elite and non-elite about the unfairness of that system. Over time, elite Chinese were fairly good at arguing 
let our, um, let our um, class trump our race. For example, there, were excluded, there was a park that initially all Chinese other than servants were excluded from, and it was the nicest park in Shanghai. And elite Chinese argued, and this was particularly effective to Americans, that you know, we're paying some of the taxes that, up, that keep that park up, and the group that, that runs, decides rules for it doesn't have our representatives on it. Aren't you the ones who talked about no representation, no taxation without representation? Uh, but eventually, they managed to succeed to get access to that. But they introduced, but the, in allowing all Chinese to use it, a use fee was introduced, which meant that the poor of all countries were kept out of the public park. So, um, but so there were complaints about that period of colonialism. But then there was the Japanese invasion. 1937, the Japanese took over militarily all of the Chinese-run parts of the city. And then after Pearl Harbor, they moved into the international settlement in the scenes you know, done beautifully in one of my favorite Shanghai movies, Empire of the Sun. But so then there was a period of hard colonialism of Japanese control of the city, which was a much rougher kind without these gray areas. And so now when there's this kind of nostalgic invocation of old Shanghai in its earlier internationalization, it's not the Japanese period. So in other words, the Japanese period of harsher colonialism sets off and allows um, a reinterpretation of that earlier period as being a kind of, um, yes, it had its problems, but it also led to some kind of um, excitement that was partly generated by mixtures of Chinese and foreigners. So that would be how I think there's able to be that much nostalgia for that, for that period. It's a really good question. Now. Yeah? Could you give us a few words about higher education in China and in Shanghai and universities and foreign students there and the Chinese coming here and all that sort of thing? Sure. Um, and it's fitting because, um, you know, in Shanghai was where Obama met with um, hand-picked Chinese students to have a town hall meeting. Um, well, I mean, there are a few things to say. Shanghai has traditionally been um, the second most important cluster of universities. Beijing has, has the highest ranked one, Shanghai the next one. So Shanghai has enormous numbers of um, academic institutions now. It used to be have some of the best um, you know, missionary schools before 49 or Western-run ones. And, now, and then after 49, it's quite consistently been a step behind Beijing, but also has very important um, cities. Um, I can tell you one specific thing. If anybody wants to study um, Shanghai history um, and a study abroad program, CET runs one in Shanghai um, that is very interesting. It, it combines Chinese language learning with a history of Shanghai um, and then an internship with a global company. Shanghai, and I'm going to, this summer I'll be teaching a section of it um, for four weeks. I'll be tag teaming with a, um, a Chinese scholar, Shanghai-based one, doing that. And we'll be using the expo as a kind of um, field study site to do that. Shanghai is becoming a place that a variety of American institutions are setting up these cooperative things where it's kind of becoming, if you want to study traditional, there's a division of labor. If you want to study more of kind of China's past, traditional culture, you're more likely to go to Beijing. And if you want to study kind of global economics or globalization, you're more likely to go to Shanghai. Um, there are students coming abroad from both Shanghai and Beijing and from all sorts of other Chinese cities. I guess, I mean, in a nutshell, I think the more flow of people between 
the two places, the better at one point, because I think we are the two countries that most need to understand one another going forward. And we don't do a very good job of it. And some of it has to do with um, exoticism that comes from lack of, of close contact. I think a lot of the problems with Chinese and American mutual understanding is we each tend to have over, we each tend to have exaggerated hopes for the other side and then get bitterly disappointed when they don't come through. I think that's been a recurring pattern. I talk about the American China dream and the American China nightmare that I think we have these intense hopes about China, about China in general. And sometimes, you know, Shanghai figures in them, but we have this hope that they're on the verge of somehow converting to our ways, whether that in an older time was Christianity or more recently was democracy. And then we're just so bitterly disappointed when they don't do it. And similarly, in China, there's this love-hate relationship of an idea of America as this special friend to China, and then we let it down. So there's very much the qualities of this kind of um, mutual infatuation followed by mutual demonization. And I just think people... Um, having actual experiences in the other country, though it's not a perfect solution to it, can be one thing to mitigate it. So I'm all for more students from there coming here and more students from here going, going there. Yeah. You know, when you talk about Shanghai, in fact, they have two times open to the West. One yeah. time is the 2030, most time we open to the West. Another is after 1990. So do you see any similarity the similarities and differences between the two times when Shanghai opened to the West. Well, I mean, I saw, I thought that was that came up a lot, but I'll, I'll think up um, some specific examples. Um, I mean, I do think there's a difference. The, here's there's there's a difference in that. Here's one difference: the decision of Shanghai reconnecting to the outside world in the 1990s was a national decision. Shanghai initially was kind of held back from this when um, the Communist Party wanted Shenzhen, this newly created place, without any of the taint of colonialism to be the, the new center of international China. And I think in the 1990s, partly because high officials with ties to Shanghai rose up, but also I think because there was a fear in China that Hong Kong would become part of China and would look like the only really modern city in the PRC. So then, so anyway... Post-1990s, it was a national decision with local support to have that openness and integration. Whereas in the late 1800s, 19, early 1900s, it was largely something kind of forced on Chinese, on China. But a lot of Shanghainese embraced it and celebrated it. I think a lot of, um, a lot of Shanghainese take a special pride in having always been somehow more interested in and open to international flows. And I know a lot of people in Shanghai will say, even during the period when we weren't, even in the period when we were supposed to be kind of in lockstep with national trends, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, there was still something that we kept of a kind of memory of, of that time. So I think there, is, there are some interesting connections, whether it's just you all, we're always familiar with seeing uh, Western architecture, international architecture, or to just give you one example, I have a friend in Shanghai who you know, she seemed very open to, to, to foreigners when uh, my wife and I became friends with her when we were living in, in Shanghai. And it was interesting because it wasn't that she spoke English very well or anything like that. In fact, she spoke very little English. And at one point, I was talking with her and she said, well, you know, um, my, 
I think it was her mother. Um, her mother grew up as when was, she was a little child. Her mother, they lived in the French concession. And so this woman's mother had had a friend who was uh, a European. And so just little things like that can be carried over and to make it sort of predisposed to have this more openness to the outside, um, the outside world. Um, so there are a lot of these, I think, these, these connections, a lot of them. Um, and, but that earlier period has also been marketed strongly as making it, so it's, it's a very strong lure to foreign businesses to say, invest here and sort of trade on the mystique. And that's led to some former colonial cities in other parts of the world to kind of want to, to, want to do what Shanghai did because Shanghai's done it so successfully. So there's a lot of talk in Mumbai, Bombay, about can't we just do the Shanghai thing? And part of the reason why they probably can't is they can't just do it top down by kind of fiat because it's a democracy and it has to have votes and there could be people who object to a development project and actually get the ear, ear of the government. And so um, it's hard for them to do it, but I think there's an admiration for the way to turn kind of this semi-colonial colonizing into an asset for the country rather than that. Another thing, the last thing I'll say, is that a lot of the investment in Shanghai that's been booming, economic boom lately, has come from, I've just learned this term, ethnic direct investment as opposed to foreign direct investment, EDI instead of FDI. So it's um, by, it's hard to figure out what, whether to call it foreign direct investment because it's largely coming from Hong Kong, which is partly part of the PRC. So is it foreign direct investment or not? But the capitalist class of uh, the merchants from China, Shanghai largely fled to Hong Kong when there was the invade, when the Communist Party took over. And now it's often Shanghai, uh, Hong Kong investors who are funding the biggest development projects, including that Shintian D I showed you. So in a way, the mystique of old Shanghai, Leo Li, a uh, Chinese literature specialist, says, it first, the first craze for old Shanghai came from Hong Kong, and now it's being realized then in, in Shanghai. Shanghai also has enormous investment from Taiwan, sometimes people again with ties to the city who are reinvesting. And hundreds of thousands of Taiwanese actually live and work in Shanghai right now, even though there's this political tension between um, the mainland and Taiwan. In cultural and economic terms, the, the two are getting incredibly braided together. Well, I think environmental constraints are enormous. It's really a national, a national issue there. And it's just, um, it's just hard to see how the country can, can keep surging in this way when you know, there's just enormous toll being taken on, on the environment in all kinds of ways. I think the biggest issue, um, the biggest issue nationally probably actually in the long run is going to be water. And it's not a problem, not, not the sinking of Shanghai, but the difficulty of providing um, enough water to the country as a whole, which has a very low water table. And it's not, as I say, it's not so much a Shanghai problem as a, as a national one. But I think there's enormous, and, and the other thing that's going on now with environment is people are, and it's part of this having felt that the problem isn't becoming modern, but living with how modernized the country is for a lot of people in some cities at least in cities, they're worried about um, 
about pollution. I mean, it's just an, an incredibly big problem, and it's becoming a, a lifestyle problem. People are, people are saying they don't want to live this way. So I think actually, if there were one thing that would keep me up, keep me up at night, if I were a, a leader of the Chinese Communist Party, the environment at multiple levels, having enough energy to fuel this this kind of growth, having enough water, and also um, having people not just get so sick of it that they they sort of um, get disgruntled at a much deeper level than at sort of purely um, purely political issues. And it's also the government is officially committed to green technology, which they've been investing a lot, and they realize the environment's a problem. So they can't stamp out in the same way an environmental protest the way they can something that's, that's, um, that's a direct attack on the government because they have to have this rhetoric, they have this rhetoric of loving the environment. So I think this is becoming one of the wedge issues where people really can mobilize against the government with more, more leverage than with other issues. So in all sorts of ways, I think it's one of the things that is a very um, difficult situation for the government to deal with as well as being something that's worrisome globally. Um, how does China, Shanghai's emergence as a global city, a global power affect the political landscape going forward? The political landscape of China or the international political landscape? Of China. Well, um, I mean, I think uh, I'm not sure how I'm not sure that Shanghai's emergence has any particular particular impact on the global land, uh, on the political landscape. I think. The political landscape is being sh being um, shifted by by perhaps a tipping from from the issue of concern being the social impact of modernizing as opposed to will we be able to modernize. So I think it's, I think there's a change in that um, the whole kind of structure of how people are framing their concerns. Um, and to give you an example, in the 19, late 1970s, Wei Jingsheng in Democracy Wall, one of the main dissidents in this, he said we need a fifth modernization, not just the four the government's talking about. We need a fifth modernization, which is democracy. But he says we, without democracy, there will be insurmountable obstacles to economic development. So he was kind of saying a, it was almost an instrumentalist thing. We need democracy or we won't be able to become economically strong. Well. Clearly, China has become, or is on the route to becoming economically very strong. So the shift now is more toward framing it. The problem is that we don't have enough say in the way we're becoming modernized. And so if you actually see a lot of the, this is what I think connects even such seemingly, in many ways, unconnected things as the anti-magnetic -mag levitation train protests in Shanghai in 2008, and the Tibetan protests in 2008. I mean, there was a very different, we tend to think of the Tibet protests as all about kind of religious freedom. And to some extent they were, but they were really, to a large extent, Tibetans saying, um, the, Beijing says, look, you should be happy. We're bringing you roads, we're bringing you a high-speed train, we're bringing you new schools. And, but the Tibetans were largely saying, we want a say in how, it's, it's not that we want to resist 
being about modernity. We want to say in how it's how it's brought to us. Nobody wants to have a particular version of modernity shoved down their throat. And so I think now increasingly in the long-term political landscape, it's about um, partly wanting a say in how exactly these, these new technologies are shaping lives. And I think you can see some of that in the, um, the, the anger that sometimes bu bubbles up among young people in China about um, the control of the internet and things like that, where it's again saying, wanting a, wanting a say and participating in this new modern China, which is quite different than saying, you guys have the wrong strategy for making China, for making China a great power. What's continuous is the biggest source of discontent in China is still corruption. And each of these kinds of issues, environmental concerns, um, modernity, it's all, it's all linked somehow to anger at official corruption. This idea that the, the, the shoving down of, of modernity down people's throat is largely deals made between developers and, um, and government officials whose palms are greased that aren't taking into account the interests of, of local people or the less powerful people. And so that's still, that was true in 89 and it's still true today. The anger at um, official corruption and the sense of powerlessness. And I think this is something that the government um, just, hasn't, just hasn't dealt with. And it may not be able to deal with it because its particular vision of development is something that depends on this mixture of private entrepreneurship and development and state-run um, state-run projects to do that. Well, if there's no more questions, I think we're about out of time, but thank you very much for... Thank you for your, your questions and comments.